Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, host, and nerd, Brandon Wilborn, and I want to thank you for listening this week. I, I Man, I, I do. I, I really thank you. It's episode 26, and I almost can't believe we've come this far. The story portion of this episode starts right after the recap. Last time in the treasure of Capric, Curian reunited with his friends, and the king sent them through the tunnels that led back down to Dury. On the way, they witnessed the first sunrise in generations. Meanwhile, Lord Avasius struggled with the sudden changes in the world as he marched toward Apiford. With the return of Muna, he planned a vicious retaliation. This week I'll be finishing Chapter 27, followed by a word of wisdom. Now I present for your enjoyment the treasure of Capric. Curian and his friends spent another two hours stumbling down the dark slopes and switchbacks that led to the plains. Finally, approaching a dead end, they found a narrow hole in the floor, through which they saw light. Beside it was a ladder. Curian stuck his head through to see a cave below, which clearly led back to the outside air. They lowered the ladder and then climbed down. From the bottom, the hole in the cave ceiling was unremarkable. Ingenious, mumbled Tobin as he watched Curian and Reese shove the ladder back into the upper passage. The sun was higher in the eastern sky when they pushed through the large shrubs that grew over the cave's mouth. They found themselves in a small clearing of the forest of Dury. The sky had settled into a single rich hue halfway between the dark blue of Tobin's eyes and the sea-gray of Louise's closer to the plumage of a bluebird. So, that's what a mountain iris looks like, Corian said under his breath. He could only guess that it had been two hours since they watched the sunrise, and unless time had changed along with the sky, he thought it was close to eight o'clock. They squinted and held hands up to block the bright sun that seemed to find every possible gap in the half-bare trees. It looks like God hung a droplet of molten gold in the sky said Tobin. Curian could only nod in agreement, because he thought the beauty of the light was unspeakable. It recast everything in an amber gold, tinged with that clear blue of the new sky. If this was how things used to be, he couldn't imagine how they ever did anything but stare in wonder at the beauty of the world. He tore his gaze away and looked at the ground, knowing there were important things to accomplish, but even the forest floor had transformed into something new, a brilliant moving tapestry of dappled lace. Down a very slight slope through thickening timber, they saw the cliff highway a half-mile in front of them. West or east? Curian asked. West, most likely, Tobin said. Gideon was taking us east toward the secret passage. We no longer look like Capricks, Curian said. Shall we try to buy horses in Dury? Rhys agreed. We look more like mercenaries. This'll be interesting. Do we have time to skirt around the forest and come in from the south? Tobin asked. Curian shook his head. It would be nice to hide our direction, especially since my shield practically announces who sent us. He pointed to the king's symbol on the gleaming metal kite. Maybe we can hide our gear in the forest, Reese suggested. Curian was thinking this over when two figures stepped out from the tree line and beckoned to them. The larger figure was unmistakably Gideon, the enormous woodsman who had helped them escape from Dury the first time. It was a relief to see him alive, 
and to know they would be under his protection again. The other was Louise. Something caught in his throat at the sight of her. I don't think we have to worry about any of those problems, he said to his friends. Reese ran to meet his new hero. Curian wanted to run and lift Louise in a sweeping embrace, but she looked upon him with a cool stoicism. Hail, King Curian, Gideon said when they were close enough to speak quietly. He knelt, which did little to make him less imposing, for even kneeling his head came nearly to Curian's shoulders. Louise knelt beside him, and then they both held out their weapons in salute. As you follow the king above, so I will follow you, Gideon finished before Curian could object. He didn't know how to react to this. It was not the reunion he hoped for, and even though he had accepted the king's calling to take on the authority to rule, he had not considered how it would change his relationships. What did they want him to do? In a moment, almost as if someone had nudged him and whispered the answer, he remembered the story of the king's great ancestor. He had not desired to rule, but he accepted the calling placed upon him. At least as far as Curian had read, that king did not grasp for power even when it was rightfully his, but had patiently waited until his authority had ripened. It seemed to be an appropriate response now. Thank you, but I'm not king yet. Not for some time, I think. You're king if he called you king, Gideon said. He pointed up toward the cliffs with one thick finger. Still, I would prefer just Curian for now. He paused, feeling the blush on his cheeks. Your sword is still very welcome in the fight we have coming. You have been the king's servant for longer than we have, so we could also use your guidance. He looked at Louise as well. Both of you. Louise rose first. I really hoped you would come around, she said. There was something different in her that he couldn't define. She seemed more at ease suddenly, and she looked at him with a queer smile that he could not interpret. How did you get down here? Tobin asked her. I thought you were taking those who couldn't fight to safety. I did, she said. Then I was told to get down here as fast as I could. I didn't think it would take you so long to follow. There was her teasing. Maybe he only imagined a difference. We have horses, Gideon said, getting to business. He led them into the trees a short distance, where five of his large horses were tethered. But before we go, we brought food in case you were hungry. He pulled bread and cheese out of his satchel, along with some cured ham, and they enjoyed an impromptu feast. The boys ate as if they had not had a meal for days. In truth, Curian did not know when he last ate. In the caves he had not been hungry, but while descending the cliffs he began to feel weak and his stomach growled. The hasty meal was filling and restored his energy. We cannot afford to waste any more time, he said, rising from the forest floor. The king only said he had arranged a meeting with Evasius, but he did not say when. We have to ride as quickly as possible. Gideon gave him a knowing smile. Most of you make a light load so my beauty should be strong enough to carry you faster and further than common beasts. But my message might have ruffled Evasius's feathers, so I wouldn't plod along at my normal pace. He had the adventurous glint in his eyes that Curian remembered. If it weren't for their sparkle, they would almost be lost in all the hair. He winked, one eye disappearing like a bird hiding in a bush, then added, I think he's arranged things so you will arrive right on time. Noman desired sleep. 
Two long nights of fire, blood, and battle in a month were too many for a man his age. He was grateful for whatever miraculous thing it was that broke the assault. Xander had told him it was the king's doing. But the work had continued until dawn as they wrestled to detain the attackers who went into a mindless rage and comfort those who were injured. Most of that time he had been in the House of Healing, where he felt like a novice again compared to the mastery of Carissa. Her deftness at bandaging wounds and her knowledge in herbal remedies were impressive. Her skill humbled him, but her sense of humor made it bearable, even enjoyable, to be her assistant. Surprisingly, he found working with a woman preferable in some ways to working with his brothers. He stepped out of the House of Healing for the first time that morning and was dumbfounded at the transformation before him. The whole world was bright in a way he had never seen. Immediately he thought of the stories and paintings from the time of Finn. My imagination was too feeble to conjure this, he told himself. Still his body demanded rest, and weariness tugged at his grit-filled eyes. He stepped to the spring beside the house where water trickled out of the sheer wall into a delicately carved fountain bowl and then spilled into a small pool on the ground. He splashed his face, and it was cold and refreshing, but little match for the sleepless night. Then he took a sip, and the liquid cooled him all the way down to his belly. Suddenly he felt rejuvenated, as if he had enjoyed the best sleep of his life. No, he felt stronger, surer of himself. The aches and pains that haunted him for a decade seemed to vanish. He felt young again. Good, isn't it? said Xander from beside the house. It's life-giving, he replied. Just wait, Xander said. He rapped on the small fountain, and the gentle flow became a gushing jet of water. The pool it fed, bloated from the seasonal rains, had already spilled over its edge, and a small rivulet ran down through the camp. Now it became a steady stream. That was when Noman noticed the old, shallow riverbed crossing straight through the square between the three largest buildings. The stream filled the center of the riverbed, then gathered beneath a cleft in the encircling canyon walls where blue sky showed over the cliff's edge. A crowd was gathering to either side of the growing reservoir. It can't be, Noman said. He suddenly felt a very unfamiliar emotion. He was giddy. Xander nodded with the excited look of a young boy sharing a secret. I'd stand back if I were you. The ground began to tremble. Which way? Corian said to Gideon when they were all mounted. The quickest way is to take the road back toward Derry, and then turn to follow the Apos before we reach the city, Gideon said. They rode at a brisk pace until they neared the riverbed then slowed to a walk, dismounted, and left the road. Gideon led them to a hiding space within the trees where they could see the city's eastern gate. They saw no guards near the closed doors. Looks like they locked the city down, Reese said. Scared of the sun, Gideon said, shaking his head. Superstitious clods. Behind him, Curian heard Tobin grunt before a harried, No, no, no! He looked to see him struggling to hold back the big horse, which was heading straight for the forest edge. The other horses also started pulling on their leads, and only Gideon was able to restrain his mount. Eventually he released it anyway. The animals all pushed through the undergrowth toward the riverbed and the cliffs. Don't go after them, Gideon grunted. 
Wait and see if the guards respond. Tobin let go and fell backward. Then they all watched as the horses trotted to the cliffs. The stone looked wet, and a large puddle stood at the foot of the cliff face. The horses drank greedily until the puddle was only a muddy patch in the soft loam of the riverbed. There was no alarm from the city. When the horses returned to the trees, they carried a sweet smell about them, like the earthy scent that came with the first rains of autumn, but mingled with the aroma of spring blossoms in the orchard. The water was more proof of everything the king had told him, and he silently rejoiced. This is good news, Gideon said. Don't tell me the river is going to start again, too, Tobin said. One corner of his mouth began twitching. Curian, Gideon, and Louise looked at each other and nodded together. Tobin let himself grin. If everything from Finn is coming back, then what are we waiting for? He shouted. He rushed into the open and lifted himself into the saddle. In a moment, the others did the same, and they headed south at a brisk canter. Tobin's enthusiasm encouraged Curian's growing confidence. Then they crossed the southern corner of the city, and his heart sank when they heard shouts from the walls behind them. The southern gate was open, and a contingent of soldiers ran for their own mounts, waiting nearby. Curian heard the whisper of arrows flying dangerously close. Run! Gideon shouted. The horse raced to a gallop before Curian could give a command. In what felt like moments, he saw the edge of the forest and the open plains. Wind and hoofbeats thundered in his ears, but behind him he heard the thudding of many more hooves tearing at the ground. Glancing back, he saw a pack of riders a half-mile behind. He was tempted to stop because he was so tired of pursuit. It was time to stand and fight, as his friends had stood at the gates of the king's camp. The horse started to slow as if in response to his thoughts, and the others pulled ahead of him. The rumbling of the horses grew louder in his ears until it engulfed all other sound, even though his horse continued to slow on its own. Ahead of him, Tobin, then Louise, and the others slackened their pace as well. The booming noise began to sound nothing like hoofbeats at all. It turned into a dull, chaotic rumble that came from all around him. Then he noticed that the ground itself shook, and the horse struggled to keep its footing. He pulled on the reins and came to a rough stop, then turned in the saddle, barely holding his balance. Tremors convulsed through the ground, and the trees of the forest swayed like tall grass in a breeze. The pursuing horses stumbled and reared. Some fell or threw their riders. The cliffs towering above the forest seemed to be the only solid thing within sight because of their massive size. He looked to their heights just in time to see a torrent of water shoot from a cleft in the top. There was so much water that he thought it would drown the city of Dury. The cataract fell to earth with a boom that overwhelmed the earthquake, leaving only the rushing sound of the oncoming flood. A wash of mist spattered his face in the same moment that he saw a wave charging from the forest. It plowed through the riverbed in a wall half as high as the trees. He watched in horror as it swallowed fifteen soldiers and their horses, and then his own horse was scrambling to reach the riverbank. They crested the bank just before the seething river devoured them. Spray and foam thrown from the tempestuous wave soaked him as it roared past. There was no sign of the soldiers it had washed away. The ground shuddered once more as the flood passed south, and finally everything was calm. The swift water at his feet was the only moving thing. The same nauseous shock that came after the fight in the apple grove swept over him. He was lucky to be alive. 
For a moment he sat in the saddle, immobile, frozen in the tug-of-war between awe and terror. He was about to dismount and gather his wits when the horse nickered and took off at a fresh gallop, chasing his friends and the vanguard of the river. As the horse drove forward with reckless speed, one final thought came to him as if spoken from someone else. This is what the king meant when he said help would come. Now the sun is shining and the river is flowing again. The people of Pollingham are in for a shock as they watch their entire world change. How are they going to take it? Join me next week as the treasure of Capric continues. Now for that quick word of wisdom. This one isn't from the Bible. It comes from my grandpa Wilborn, and it's full of common sense. Now, I know he didn't create the phrase. It's, it's something every carpenter's heard, but I heard it from him. Measure twice, cut once. It's a phrase that speaks to being ready for your work. It's about preparation. It's about knowing what you need to get the job done and making sure that as you're doing it, you don't get so caught up in all the details that you overlook something and then, uh, you know, waste time or waste materials. <laughs> I'm bringing this up because I may be barely getting this episode out this week on time. You see, I had so much going on last weekend that I completely forgot that I had already recorded this week's story content. And then this week was busy too, so my time to be able to record was pretty small. And when I opened up my story content, I was so focused on just getting it done that I didn't realize that the last section that was for this week was, uh, was not edited. And I went ahead and ran through to record the next week's or the next chapter of content and forgot completely that that wasn't for this week. So it, with very little time available, I uh, recorded a second week rather than editing this week. And, uh, and to make it worse, I even edited the story for next week. So I doubly wasted time. I didn't measure at all. I just cut. And I didn't realize it until I was completely done with the editing for next week that this week wasn't done. Which is exactly what this phrase is about. Uh, having done a little bit of carpentry, I know that if you just write a whole bunch of stuff down and then grab your wood and start going on the saw, eventually you are going to have a piece that is too short, which wastes time because you cut something inappropriately and now it doesn't fit, but it also wastes resources, it wastes material, because now that piece doesn't go where it's supposed to go, and maybe you get lucky and you can use it in a different cut somewhere, but now you have to go get more wood you got to go spend more money to go get more resources so that you can actually get the job done. And that's not a great place to be. So now, I'll be ahead for next week. That's great. But man, it's going to be tight today. So, I wasn't wasting materials. Well, unless you count bits as materials. But I was wasting time. And so, take that to heart, I guess, if in your own work. Do a little organization which as a creative person is not one of my major strengths. But just look at your work and plan it out well. And then before you actually do something, double check. Do that, do that measure twice factor, uh, whatever that looks like in the job you're doing. Anyway, that's my little wisdom for my grandpa. Man, I miss him.
Thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I would love to hear your comments, questions, feedback, anything you've got. Uh, Last week, I I asked about how I should proceed with doing the podcast versus doing uh, more stories, because it's been challenging to get the time to do both with my other work. If you got an opinion on that, too, or heck, even if you want to share the wisdom you learned from your grandparents, reach out to me. Uh, You can leave me a message by typing, or you can send me a voicemail with a link on my website. Just go to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. And if you're not sure how to spell Brandon Wilborn, just look at the title of the podcast you're listening to. It's right there. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying it, please give it a five-star rating and review, and then share this show with your fellowship of fantasy fans. By doing that, you're helping me beat the algorithm. And, uh, you know, it's just like books. People listen to podcasts by friend recommendations or family recommendations. So if you like it and you know other people who like fantasy, uh, they're probably going to enjoy it too. And you're giving them hours of free entertainment. They'll thank you. It's a free Christmas present. That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Caprick is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwillborn.com. That's brand on, not brand off, and Willborn is as simple as you can make it. W-I-L-B-O-R-N. This has been The Treasure of Caprick, book one of The King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright, Brandon M. Wilborn.